This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. So with that being said, I want to talk to you about Basemap. Basemap is awesome. It's cheaper than all the other online mapping systems. It's got great features. You can draw circles for finding distance away from trailheads and all kinds of cool stuff like that. I've been using it for planning my hunt. And uh, if you want to save 25%, use the promo code PC25. Sign up on the website and use it because it will not work on the app. That's PC25, sign up, save, base map's awesome, cheaper price than the rest, and you're saving money on it. The next thing I wanna to talk to you about is treelineacademy.net. Mark Livesey's Treeline Academy is awesome. I've learned so much and I hope to apply that in my e-scouting and be successful this year. And if you wanna save 20% on sign up, use the promo code PC2020 sign up for the course it's a two-year subscription so you're really getting your money's worth and on top of that i want to talk to you about initial ascent packs i've been using initial ascent packs i did a giveaway and the winner of that giveaway got an initial ascent pack as well and i hope he enjoys it as much as i do because that 2k is freaking awesome joe and dennis are great amazing people and the cool part about it is when you reach out to that company you're actually reaching out to Dennis and Joe. So this isn't a promo code or anything like that. It's just a shout out. And I want everybody to know that I love my pack. And if you're looking for one, man, seriously, check them out and uh, get yourself one. In fact, I just ordered a 6K the other day and it should be coming real soon. Super stoked and excited for that and can't wait to get it on the mountain. And uh, with that being said, let's get to the show. Okay, so I'm sitting here with Garrett Prawl. And um, most people probably know you as the DIY sportsman. So um, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, first of all. I, like you said, have the DIY sportsman page on YouTube and have been doing that for probably, probably about 10 years now that I've really started, you know, actively trying to, to build it up and post videos and been kind of a mix. Some hunting videos, some DIY videos, some how-to videos, and you know, at the beginning it was it was all small stuff, and just kind of steadily grew over the years, and and now it's you know, it's gotten gotten to the point where it's it's really become a lot of fun. I enjoy you know putting out videos and making content for everybody, and we've you know figured out a way to to start getting out into the woods more. So it's been uh, it's been good all around. No, that's pretty cool. Um, so when you first started, what was like, what was your intent? What what did you like want to get out of it or what did you want to try and uh, get across? So when it first started, that was back in like 
we'll say like 2005, 2010, like in that range. That was before social media was really big and forums were much bigger at that point in time. And so I was on quite a bit of deer hunting forums and, you know, people would have good discussions and, you know, smaller group atmosphere than what you get with a lot of the Facebook or, or Instagram type feeds nowadays. And so on some of those discussions, you know, it would sometimes just be easier to make a video than it would be to try and, you know, type something up or make a little pictorial how-to in the DIY threads. And so I already had some experience just kind of filming the hunts, had bought a camcorder and wasn't really, you know, at that point, a very knowledgeable hunter, wasn't getting a lot of, you know, kills on film or, or anything like that. But I was learning quite a bit about how to make a decent video. And so when I started making like a how-to to explain what I was doing, you know, that, that kind of sparked an interest and I was like, man, this is, this is kind of fun. Um, and, and that's really, I guess, how it started. At, at that time, you know, YouTube wasn't monetized. It was just all building videos to be able to, to you know, share with the community. Yeah. I, that, <laughs> I don't even know when I actually discovered YouTube, but I've been, I was a late bloomer on the social media. Um, at my first Facebook account I had like around college time. And, um, after that, it was like grandparents started joining and I actually deleted it when you could actually delete your social media and it went away permanently. Um, and then as I started the podcast, I realized quickly that I needed the social media to help kind of spread the word about it and, and get it out there. So I, I honestly don't know when I started watching YouTube, but I know that as far as hunting content and stuff, your videos were definitely some of the first ones I watched, especially as I progressed into like the public land stuff um, and started getting different sticks. It was different where I was taking climbing sticks and carrying them in with me and trying to figure out how to make them as quiet as possible. Um, and and before that, you know, you set up a tree stand and you just sneak into the woods and, and uh, hang it up when you're and and once it's up, you just leave it and you go climb up in it every day and and there it is. But it it was a totally different ball game when I had to actually hunt public ground and take down your tree stand every day. And um, so I remember like the first videos I watched, I wanted to figure out how what I could do to make my buckles quieter on the climbing sticks. And I think it was uh, you ended up doing the heat shrink tubing. And I was like, that's freaking genius. Cause I tried wrapping tape on it and then the tape, the strap would get stuck in the tape and it was just a, a, just trial and error. And then I got on YouTube and I just, or I Googled it and your video popped up, I think is how, and then it took me down the whole YouTube rabbit hole. And I was like, man, this dude's doing a lot of cool stuff. Um, what kind of, what kind of led you to do all the quiet? I mean, obviously because you wanted to figure it out for yourself, I'm guessing, but wh what did, uh, what kind of drove you to do all that with the different trying the different methods and coming up with stuff yeah so you know i had a, a couple of good i'll call them virtual mentors in terms of getting into the mobile hunting game uh where you know me and my dad we didn't really know what we were doing when we first started hunting public land it was it was brand new to us and we found you know sites and people like dan involved were really you know making a name for themselves and, and being successful in that style of hunting you know, hunting a different tree every time, doing the scouting and, and trying to find new spots and being able to, to get into trees that maybe aren't the easiest to be able to climb, setting up close to bedding. And, and noise is so crucial, especially later in the season when the foliage has fallen and, and maybe you get some snow on the ground. And so really it became pretty obvious pretty quickly, especially with cheaper gear, that it had, just had to be silenced. You, know, you could be really careful with some gear and not make a peep but you know was it a risk you were willing to take where one clang and, and your whole day and, and potentially that deer that you were scouting and set up on it's all over and you got to figure out the the whole game all over again uh, so silencing stuff is something that was pretty easy it makes sense and it had a real world you know pretty tangible benefit uh, so so it definitely you know kind of it's easy to go down that rabbit hole and just silence everything you could possibly silence and, and sometimes there'd be things where like i know this needs to be quieter um you, you tape something up but then there also be those other things where you just you learn on a hunt like oh my release you know hit my climbing stick when i was climbing up the tree maybe i need to tape my release or maybe i just need to climb with it in my pocket put it on up in the tree things like that that you would only learn from actually being out in the woods uh, but, but definitely 
you know, that was kind of what sparked it was the, the hunting style. Um, so what, what were some of the like aha moments that you had to where either you failed at something or something made a noise and then you figured out how to, uh, actually make it better or quieter? Yeah. So the, the release one for me, what I sell films was one I figured out the hard way where I had a, a wrist strap release. And of course the, it just, you know, dangles while you're, while you're not actually having it clipped up on your bow. And when I would operate the camera arm, uh, there was a point in time when I was filming a buck coming in and that dangling release just ticked the camera arm, made a little ping and that buck picked his head up and took off and he was gone and that was it. Uh, so that was a pretty, a pretty painful moment that, uh, the instant you're getting home, you're figuring out what I need to do to make sure that never happens again. Uh, that was a big one for sure. There's been times when, like, let's say, for example, um, you know, zippers on certain garments, they sound fine when you're putting them on in the uh, in the backyard or, or in the house or whatever, and then you get out there and it's 15 degrees, and the zippers just sound super loud. And then you got to figure out a way to either you know, silence them or figure out a different piece of clothing to, to replace and use instead. Um, those would be like a, a couple examples. So what would you do to like silence the zippers then? You know, there's really, there's really not a whole lot you can do. Um, oftentimes if I would apply like a little bit of like stealth stripping to the edges, it just seems to kind of um, silence the, I guess, rattle that can make a little bit of the noise, but the zippers are a tough one. That's um, probably a bad example to, to be honest, because it, it's usually not one of those things that I've really fixed and been totally happy with it. Uh, but pretty much anything that can make contact noise, uh, where you hit one thing against another, I, I tape all that stuff. Um, and depending on how heavy the contact is, it might just be, you know, a, a padded tape, like a stealth strip or like a moleskin or something like that. Or it might be something a little bit more extreme, like taking rubber bicycle tubing and wrapping that around where you get a you know, ton of padding there. That's what I did with, uh, like, say, my, my tree stand when I had the platform. And the post and the post when it would swing down and hit the platform that obviously makes a ton of noise so in addition to have every, having everything taped up i would take five sixteenths inch rope wrapped around the whole edge of the platform and around any of the um the rungs of that aluminum that actually made contact with that seat when it would come into contact and then you could just you know basically throw that post down and it, it's not going to make a peep um i do the same thing on my my saddle platforms now right i tape all the the stuff that could make contact if it's uh the place where the the post hits the platform when the platform is folded up i'll put you know several layers to really build it up and make sure it's nice and soft and cushioned so those are the really easy ones uh, to be able to do anything that makes that physical contact wrapping it is is definitely the way to go so i when i used my climber um the lone wolf climber actually every time you'd set it down to you'd loosen the the cam buckles or not the cam buckles, but the knobs, the knobs on the side that would put the tension on it. As soon as you'd release them, it'd fall down if you weren't paying attention and it would smack and actually used your method of tying. I used paracord, but I tied it around in like a Cobra weave around the back edge of it and then continued it around the front. And it was actually cool. I think you said something like, um, it's good for, you know, feeling the edge of it on your boots too. You can kind of feel the edge so you don't step step yeah. too close to the edge that worked pretty good but then i got into the whole saddle hunting thing which i know you've done a lot of stuff with that and different testing as far as the saddles what was kind of like the first saddle stuff that you did and how has that evolved or progressed into what you're kind of doing now or running the first time i well i guess this is kind of kind of a saddle kind of a hybrid type of a thing I had bought a, a Lone Wolf Assassin, you know, 15 years ago, whenever they were being sold. And I hunted out of that for, uh, a, you know, several years in conjunction with also hunting out of a tree stand. And that one is just kind of, it was set up to be more of like an extreme leaning type of a platform where you'd be almost vertical the entire time and would just lean back a little bit. Uh, so it was more of just kind of a, a standing platform, like a tree stand without a seat. You'd still face the tree, like as if you were saddle hunting. Uh, but I used that quite a bit and, and just kind of went back and forth. The biggest downside to me was just the comfort. I didn't like having to stand basically uh, in place for, for several hours. The, the saddles that they have out now are, are a lot more comfortable and the, 
the fact that you can kind of more easily sit and take the weight off your feet and actually you know, sit in the saddle and transfer some of that weight to your hips. But going from that, I went into a rock harness and a sit drag system where the rock harness was providing me my support and my lifeline. That was what I was connecting to on my tether. But then I also had a, a sit drag, which is basically just a, a fabric sling. Imagine like a, a swing at your you know local playground, but fabric. And the bridge, I just had a piece of one-inch tubular webbing, you know, mill spec that I would hook into a carabiner. And it wasn't the main, um, I guess, lifeline, but it was set up so that that was the piece that was under tension. And I hunted out of that for uh, probably about a year, year and a half. And then I started trying other more, you know, that was about the time when commercial saddles started to really become available more and more. And then once I started trying the commercial ones, I was like, yeah, there's definitely a difference here. There's a lot of benefits, advantages over what I was trying to DIY. And you can DIY a good saddle, especially if you got good, good sewing skills, which at the time I did not have. <laughs> so, yeah, once I went to, you know, kind of the commercial saddle route, then it was more like, okay, I can use this as a, a baseline and then make modifications to these as, as I see fit. Uh, so right now I'm running the um, the tethered phantom and that's what I've been hunting out of for the past couple of years. So um, when you were in that sit drag, I mean, I've never actually sat in one, but my buddy had a rock climbing harness and bought one of those and he said it was so uncomfortable with, uh, with the sit drag that he just couldn't do it anymore and he ended up making his own out of like fleece or something with some mule tape and some other stuff. I mean, what, was it comfortable sitting in that uh, sit drag or was it, you know, bearable? Yeah, I guess I, I didn't think it was that bad. Um, it's a, it's a smaller chunk of webbing. So it doesn't have as much height as some of the saddles now that you would have, but you could have that panel of that sit drag and you could kind of tuck it all the way underneath and kind of sit in it like a swing. And then if you had just kind of a DIY little recliner or backband strap going around your back to lean against, then you, you really had all the support you needed. Uh, and if you were more of a leaner type of guy, then you don't really need much top to bottom surface to be able to lean against. So I didn't think it was that bad, but the, the issues that I had with it more than anything were because that panel was sort of separated, it just it was kind of had a fiddle factor to it. and especially if I would pull myself up and, you know, put uh, just kind of put my body into a vertical position so that I could either rotate in place on the platform and then I would want to sit back down again. Whenever I would stand up and there'd be a little bit of slack on that uh, bridge, that sit drag would just fall right down uh, to the point where I eventually just started, like, you know, tying it in place with little paracord loops uh, just to kind of hold it statically in position. Uh, again, it wasn't the, the lifeline like the rock harness was, but it made it a little bit more user-friendly in that regard. But, yeah, the, the usability and the functionality of it um, combined with, it's like, you know, I got to start adding some additional straps and hookup points to this thing. Uh, and that really made, and, and I guess the Lyman's loops too. The, the Lyman's loops are definitely DIY. Uh, they weren't they weren't uh, something that I would you know, typically recommend now. There, there's so many options. I wouldn't say that I should do that that same method anymore. Uh, because the way I had the Lyman's loop hooked up was basically going through the hall loop of that rock harness, which is rated for like, I don't know, I want to say like 10 or 15 kilonewton load, but it's a, a static load rating. It's not intended to be like a, a fall restraint or anything like that. So uh, the way that the the commercial ones are, are done now, it takes care of all those issues. Or if you're going to DIY one, having the, the built-in Lyman's loops as you know an integral part of that system where you have that support built into it all the way around would be the way to go. Yeah. It's kind of funny. <laughs> You've definitely got an engineering mindset when it comes to uh, all these things. You could you could tell by how many kilonewtons <laughs> and everything. It's <laughs> it's funny because I mean I deal with engineers a lot at work and stuff. So um, it, depending on the engineer, they've got a different mindset to where they can actually have like a functional application, and then you have got the engineers that understand the the mechanical principles but not the actual actions or functions of something and i could kind of tell that you're one of those guys that has a grasp on it can actually pick up the tools and use them as well as the whole mindset thing just by you know talking to you and watching your videos and stuff and that's pretty cool um so w when you're like when you started experimenting with the saddles what what was like the biggest drawbacks that uh right away you wanted to modify because i noticed 
like on mine it was a bridge like that your standard bridge length or whatever it just kind of it would get that's like if i'd put it on in the dark a lot of times i i would it would hang down and i'd end up getting the bridge caught in my buckles or like my waist strap or something which is fine but then when you go to hook up to it you realize what's going on there and you have to stop and uh and and fix it and um like i always kind of wanted it a little bit longer but now i'm almost thinking i want it shorter that way i can just have a longer anchor point on the tree but like what what was your take on that well when i started out when i had that citric system i had the the bridge actually long enough that I could flip it up over my, my head and just kind of drape it over my shoulders in the walk in. So it didn't have, it didn't dangle at all. I did the same thing with my lineman's rope. I would just kind of put it over my shoulders, hook it into the opposite loop and then just kind of pull it tight. So I was able to just walk with those two, um, you know, ropes or, or uh, webbing over my shoulders like that. And that worked okay. But you know, after a while, if you got a pack on too, it gets a little bit uncomfortable. Um, so I did the same thing where, I went from that to more of a shorter fixed bridge and because I was using the tubular webbing that was easier to make whatever length I wanted to and then tie it. Uh, and then I transitioned to the am steel and the am steel was of course more work because you had to do the splicing, but I mean, the splicing is not that hard to do. That's, that was kind of the natural transition there. Ever since they came out with the, um, I guess the Prusik system, unlike the, the tethered phantom where they have the am steel that also has the adjustability with that, they call it a utility bridge, it's basically a, a Prusik with the amp steel. That system I like the best now just because you can make it long, but then when you actually go to walk, you can just tighten that rope. You know, it sucks the, the saddle nice and tight to your body. It takes those bridge loops that would be flopping and pulls them nice tight in front of your hips. And then you just take the tag end of that bridge and you just tuck it into a, a, a hip pocket and that keeps it from flopping around when I'm walking. Wait a minute. So, because <laughs> I, obviously I haven't been watching enough videos or something. So, the newer the newer bridges have a Prusik on the bridge. Mm -hmm. So then it just yeah, tightens so on adjustable. itself. Yeah, there's there's a there's a couple you know ways of making an adjustable bridge, right? Like a, a Prusik would be one of them. I actually had, had done that at one point with uh, one of the earlier commercial saddles that I had where it was originally just a, a tied one, but I, I took a, a, like an eight millimeter and I was using an 11 millimeter bridge rope and I took that smaller uh, Prusik cord and just tied it into my saddle basically so that I could you know, have that adjustability. And, and again, it was, it was nice for certain things um, because I could make it longer, put it over my shoulders if I wanted to. And then if I was hunting out of a tree where I needed it to be shorter, then I could make it shorter. So, that is like one way of doing it. Another way of doing it would be to have like a carabiner and a, a sender, like a rope man, uh, to perform that adjustment. You could have the same, you know, type of thing where you can make your bridge longer or shorter. Uh, Am steel. You can also do things like um, like whoopie slings. I, I've never been a fan of, of whoopie slings or the UCRs for Am steel in actual hunting applications. There's there's too much of a fiddle factor for me. So whenever I've tried those, I've gone back from them pretty quickly. Uh, whether it was like climbing sticks or, or saddle accessories or, or what be it. So what did uh, – I'm still trying to grasp the concept, though. So you're saying a Prusik on the bridge that goes to the anchor, so on the rope of the anchor, or are you saying the the, the bridge has a Prusik on itself, so it's like a loop going through your uh, your loop on your climbing harness or your belt? And yeah, I, I literally have one sitting like six feet over here. Yeah, the, the people listening wouldn't be able to see it, but it would be help. It, it would help me explain it to you sure. a little bit more. Yeah, I'll go grab it real okay. All right, we're back. So we got the saddle here, and here's my bridge. And you can see how this is am steel, and this is just a, a smaller am steel that is basically the, the Prusik 
is such that it's constricting onto your your tether or your bridge, excuse me. But the the loop is connected directly to the bridge loop on the saddle. And then a stop knot on your actual bridge, so it doesn't. Yeah, pull and a stop or knot on the. Exactly. Okay, so yes, so yep. it is it is a Prusik on one of the loops and a carabiner on the other, and and that goes into your your saddle the loops that come off the side of your saddle, so you can actually adjust your bridge. That's what I wasn't I wasn't fully sure yeah. about. That's what I thought you were saying, but I was like, how is that? I've never even thought of that. And that's awesome, though, because then you can shorten it and lengthen it. That, yep. um, and you don't have to have a carabiner on it. It can be spliced onto the other side. The only reason that I have a carabiner on that one side is because if I want to use insulation that goes over the top of my saddle, like uh, an IWAM or like the, the Sika incinerator bibs that have the pass-through pockets, then I can put that insulation over top of my saddle and run the, the bridge through a pocket and into the other one and back into the saddle and that keeps the insulation from getting compressed nice i just thought of it maybe i should explain uh, what a prusik is for anybody that doesn't know but um it's used a lot in climbing as like an ascender knot and it's actually a knot that looks like a barrel knot that wraps around itself and as tension is pulled on it it cinches down and grabs the rope and essentially stops in place and holds you in place where it's at but you can loosen that by grabbing it and sliding it and as you go up and release the tension it can slide along the rope does that sound decent fair enough yeah yeah i mean if people still aren't grasping it you know google is your friend on this one there's <laughs> going to be a gazillion pictures and tutorials on how to build them and applications of where they're being used and all that good stuff yeah that's a good point and the stop or not you can google that too and that's yep. that's very important you always want that very stop important. or not yes Otherwise, the tail end could just pull right through. Um, so after you kind of – that's pretty cool, though. Did you come up with that on your own, or was that something you borrowed from somebody, or is that come standard on you, a – You know, well, it comes standard on the, the tethered uh, Phantom. The thing with a lot of these DIY ideas is a lot of them are community-grown. So I honestly can't remember at that time. You know, when I did it on the, the original Arrow Hunter saddle that I had, I can't remember if I had seen that somewhere else. Um, or if I had thought of that by on my own, a lot of those ideas on the, the forums where a lot of these ideas originated, you know, there's stuff bouncing back and forth all over the place. And, and so it's, it's, you know, unique ideas are, are pretty rare. It's usually, it's, it's usually, you know, inspired from something you've seen um, right. and then just kind of built off of it. Well, that's kind of like um, when I first got into the saddle thing, there was a huge rush at the time. Um, for all the platforms and i did not want to wait six months for a platform i wanted it wanted to play with it right before hunting season and um i ended up trying to build an ernie platform so i took my xop seat and uh called up dano over in uh i think it was the east coast something or rather um where they have eastern woods yes eastern woods and uh ordered some parts from him, some standoffs and some different things and uh went and built built myself a platform which I went through all the old archives, joined saddlehunter.com and did that whole thing and um joined the forum and I was going back through all the old archives and it was the Ernie platform and ended up building an Ernie platform and it was pretty cool to see how that developed throughout that thread. Um, and just the different additions and changes and the, all the things like that that happened. Um, but I got to say, I didn't didn't care for it because there was a few times you couldn't get it to lock on to where it would really bite. And uh, I had a scary moment <laughs> where it actually pulled away from the tree. And it, it was enough to make me not want to do it. And I learned out how important the lineman's belt actually is because yeah. I did slide down. and. Um, slid down all the way to my first climbing stick and it knocked the first climbing stick underneath the, and knocked that one out. <laughs> and, uh, and then I ended up landing on the next one after the lineman's belt pulled me tight to the tree, but that was a, an experience for sure. Yeah, definitely a good reminder to always be, always be connected. I did the same thing, you know, like a lot of guys did. I, well, similar to the Ernie platform at that time, I didn't really know Ernie that well, but, um, I actually, I did the same kind of concept, but instead of just doing the aluminum post, I just took a block of aluminum and I machined it out in my garage so that I had basically an I-beam. 
I put six point brackets on the top and bottom and then attached the uh, the XOPC to mine. The, the thing I, I never liked about that style was there was always a little bit more flex than I wanted in the platform, and it squeaked a little bit in cold weather for the pivot bolt lugs. Right. You know, so I was putting wax and stuff on the bolt and, and trying to get that quieted down. But yeah, there's always, you know, those couple little quirks with it that, you know, DIY is, is great, but man, like sometimes you end up spending more money trying to you know improve and iterate <laughs> yourself that, that you end up spending way more money trying to DIY something than if you would have just bought something. And of course, at the time, there wasn't really any other, many other options. Right. So then I ended up buying the Predator, um, bought the Predator platform. And as soon as I bought it, um, by the time late winter rolled around, putting on my boot covers and everything, I was like, man, this is kind of small. And then it's like right after that, they made an announcement in like January that they got the Predator XL. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh man, what did I do? I should have waited. But no, that that kind of stuff happens, but that's cool. I'm kind of uh, always wanting to try out new gear and do all that kind of stuff anyway, so it works out. But um, when you say you machined it, do you mean you like hogged it out with something or actually milled it out with an actual mill? I have a tabletop CNC in my garage. So I, I did the CAD and the, the I-beam how I wanted it to, um, I guess, be milled out. Left the, the full thickness where I wanted the bolt to go through at the top and bottom for those bolts and did the the cam uh, cutting, I guess, uh, code from the the 3D file and then put it in the machine and let it run. And er, I see, I saw a spool of 3D uh, printing material behind you yep. there. So you, uh, I mean, are you making a lot of your own stuff now or... It, it depends. You know, I, I do sometimes, sometimes, honestly, the amount of time I have to balance with like, if it's, if it's literally just trying to replicate something I could buy, I have to balance how long is it going to take me to build this thing myself versus if I just were to buy it. Uh, Cause there's that, you know, time money balance. This is the trade off there. Oh yeah. But if it's, if it's something that I think is different or, or better than what's out there, I just want to make a tweak to something. I'm thinking like, I like this thing, but, I wish it was designed a little bit like this. That's what I'm more likely to to do it myself. And you know, to be honest, the 3D printing when with saddle hunting, there's it's great for accessories and things like that. But there's you know certain applications where it's just not strong enough, uh, and you'd have to go to something like a you know milled aluminum or, or you know something to that effect. So it's definitely useful for for certain things. You know, it seems like uh, you know a couple times a week I'm printing something, the old SD card holder something you know, that, that actually is useful right um so have you looked into the the 3d metal printing yeah yeah we uh we've looked into it at you know i, I work at a, an engineering company makes medical devices and we've looked at those types of technologies there's you know the metal 3d printing um there's also the additive manufacturing that uses as you've seen a hybrid where it's uh, a combination of additive and machining to where you can basically build a layer of, of something and then it gets you know machined and then you build another layer and it gets machined and they can make mold assemblies that are like that and be able to make the cooling geometries that you would never be able to do out of just a, a normal machine but it's still made out of the hardened like tool steel um, there's carbon fiber reinforced additive manufacturing where you can actually have you know long strands of either carbon fiber or fiberglass not just like the chop you know chunks that go into the extruder material there's definitely a lot of technology there on the higher end and more structural end but it's really expensive to get into some of that as <laughs> yeah. like a hobbyist level for sure that was i was looking uh i saw that there was a company that was manufacturing muzzle brakes but the intricate designs i was like there's no way they could ever mill that out and make that even with the cnc machine it just wasn't possible and I kind of started doing a little bit more research into it and then realized that they were using, um, it was like a laser laser etching or laser machining, but it was basically a pile of sand and the laser hits it and it does something, the well, not sand, the material, pow yeah. powdered metal. C centering. Yes. And then it would just keep adding, it would squeegee over it and add more sand and re-laser it and it would build it up from there. And it would turn it into this just amazing, intricate design. And I was like, holy cow, that's neat. Then I looked at the price tag of one of those machines and it was like. <laughs> yeah. Even if you're going to, even if you're going to buy something that is made out of that type of machine, because there's lots of companies that just do additive manufacturing as a service. 
and you do a CAD file and you send it off to them and, and to get a little piece that's two inches tall and kind of intricate, it's like, okay, that'll be $900 just yeah. to get that component, you know, <laughs> created. And, and then the surface finish is not that great. You know, it really makes sense for prototyping small uh, stuff when you're planning on making it more expensive down the road through, you know, other means um, or making geometries that you just can't make any other way. But other than that, it's, it's you know, not as, not as much useful for high volume stuff. No, it was cool though. I thought it was pretty neat doing that. Um, so I kind of want to, you were, you were talking a little bit, we talked before we started the podcast about um, hunting and you told me to kind of do some of those early opener out of state hunts. Um, mm-hmm. How, what did you, I mean, cause you're up in Michigan, right? Minnesota. Minnesota. So, I mean, you started out hunting local and then you kind of started branching out and going to different states. How did you make that decision or where did, where did you start with that? I think the first out of state trip that I did was probably, probably elk. I think I went to Colorado as like a, a non-resident adventure type of a hunt before I ever did an out of state whitetail hunt, you know, something that wasn't just like going across the border to Wisconsin uh, type of a thing. And I grew up in Wisconsin. So you know, at the time it would have been going to Minnesota, but that never really was, was that extreme of a, a trip. But after the first Colorado trip, I got a feel for, you know, the logistics of doing an out of state hunt and the you know, things that were nice, the things that were needed or not needed. It definitely an out of state whitetail trip logistically in my mind is usually not nearly as bad as a backcountry, say elk or mule deer hunt, uh, simply because a lot of times the the terrain is just not is not the same. Um, so a lot of times if I go on an out-of-state whitetail hunt, you know, I'm booking a campground where I might be able to have some plug-in power for my electronics, charge camera batteries, things like that, or maybe I'll just bring a bunch of extra batteries and just, you know, get a campground spot. Uh, there's been times like on turkey hunting trips where I'm trying to maximize my time in the field and minimize my PTO and, you know, driving down after work and sleeping in the, the back of a gas station parking lot and then go turkey hunting the next morning. Coming back that night, you know, I've done that on, you know, little three, four hour excursions away from home. Um, and it's one of those things that the more you, you do it and the more you make time for it, it makes it, uh, it makes it easier to, to become familiar with the process and the barrier to entry seems much lower after you've done it a couple of times than, than really taking the plunge the first time. I think the first out of state whitetail hunt that I did may have been Missouri. I'm trying to remember just like year-wise. It was either Missouri or North Dakota. I think it was Missouri first, uh, then North Dakota after that. So, um, I mean, how did you, what did you, what did you do for like research or, or anything? You just kind of looked like you would, you'd scout everything else and scouted up a couple areas or? Uh... Yeah, so at, at a high level, it's like, okay, I got this, you pick a state, right? Whatever, the, you know, based on when the opener is, or you just, you want to hound a certain environment or habitat, whatever the case may be, you pick a state or an area. And then it's like, okay, I picked the state. You start looking at the public land areas. And even though I'm not opposed to knocking on doors and trying to get on private, the logistics for me of just going to a place where I know I'm not going to struggle to get access to find a place to hunt. It's just, that's one less thing I got to worry about. So I'm looking for places that have public and preferably places that have a lot of public. Could be a big chunk, could be lots of little chunks all kind of scattered around. But I want to know that I have the option to have, you know, plans A, B, C, D, etc. if I'm running into a lot of hunters on that particular trip. That's something that, that definitely stands out to me. I'm also looking at things like what time of year is the trip and subsequently what kind of habitat is going to be really good to try and play well with that time of, of the year for that hunt. Like, for example, early season. Uh, early September hunt, like the the velvet hunts, hunting places that have ag or places where you can observe or glass or river bottom type areas, or places like say even the cattail marshes where you have really isolated food, where you have oak islands and you know that you have all this expanse of places of areas that are more cover or, or water or travel areas and really isolated food sources. That's where early season you can learn a lot and you can kind of, I guess, narrow down your options pretty quickly as compared to going to a place like the Ozarks in Missouri, where it's just a bunch of kind of monoculture hills, uh, big woods type habitat, and it's just 
the food's really spread out, it'd be really tough to figure something like that out on a short trip out of state. Uh, conversely, if it was a road trip, then I'd be looking for areas where I can e-scout and find, again, lots of areas of public land, lots of opportunities for ABC, et cetera, type spots based on the pressure. But I'm looking for places where I can find good pinch points and also, you know, secluded cover that could be, you know, bedding on either side. So that could be river bottom. It could be bluff country. Getting some great funnels in bluff country. And those would be the areas that I would tend to gravitate more towards like a rut uh, type of trip. But those are kind of the things that are that are going through my mind. And then once I once I start to figure that out, then it's a balance of you know how close am I to a big city. Generally, the advantage of hunting close to a big city is that you're oftentimes going to have good camping amenities. You're going to have you're not going to have to worry about finding a gas station. Food is not going to be an issue. Like I won't pack necessarily food if I'm going to a place where I know there's going to be those type of options. But if I'm going way out in the middle of nowhere, then I got to think about the logistics of I got to pack food. I got to make sure I got an extra can of gas in the the back in case I'm you know stuck in the um, too far to get to a gas station type of a thing. And I got to figure out the power to keep my electronics going. So there's there's logistics on either side of that. But the advantage of going out in the middle of nowhere and being farther away from big cities, of course, is that you're less likely to run into some of the hunting pressure, especially if there's more public options closer to the big cities. Yeah, I I definitely agree with that one. That's uh, one thing that I've learned, and I keep keep pushing my limits further and further away. Um, and like I kind of told you earlier that, you know, with the kids, it's kind of hard to get away, but I still, instead of hunting, I've got probably five places that are less than 20 minutes from my house but I don't hunt any of those just because of the amount of pressure that they see. I know I can get into some other places, less pressure and more, more higher success rate. I, and lately I've been looking at like success rates of the property, you know, hunter visits versus actual harvest numbers, stuff like that that's published. I find that that is super important. Um, and then I'll kind of start looking at those spots and then try and figure out um, hunt areas that I want to visit. So when you're looking at all those hunting areas and you want to visit them, are you going in blind a lot or are you um, kind of putting boots on the ground and scouting as you go walking through? If it is a place that's far enough away that I would have to take a multi-day trip to spend time there, then oftentimes I'm just figuring it out when I get there. I will have e-scouted a ton of stuff ahead of time. And then we'll try and do little speed loops once I get there to figure out where the, the freshest deer sign seems to be. And if it's a place that, let's say, is, you know, under three hours from my home, well, then I'm more likely to just pick a weekend in the spring and go pick a scouting trip and get some boots on the ground there. Another thing would be, like we talked about earlier, about what time of year it is. If it's a rut hunt and I'm hunting bluff country, then I've probably got a pretty good idea of, you know, which pinch points I'm going to hunt in. So I might not necessarily need to actually take a boots in the ground scouting trip there. I'll just show up and see where the, the vehicles are parked and, and just speed tour some areas and see what the sign looks like and just pick one of those places I've already e-scouted. Uh, whereas if it's a a place that's a little bit tougher to figure out, then I'm more likely to say even get there like you know a day ahead of the season and just spend some more time walking around. Uh, but typically I'm not going to a place that's like eight hours away and you know, for a rut hunt and just do going to do a, you know, spring scouting trip to learn the land better. Because oftentimes for those type of hunts, I'm picking places where I have the ability to e-scout it, learn, and learn as much as I need to know before I actually show up. So um, let's kind of get into that a little bit then. So um, what are you doing? I mean, other than e-scouting, what are you doing to know that you have have the, the means to show up and, and have a place that you want to be at i mean that's that's really that's really the main thing um i'll do you know just like high level research uh of like what the deer density is in the area uh what the hunting pressure is in the, in the area like for example if i'm looking for um like southeast minnesota is close to me and there's a lot of good habitat there the hunting pressure is insane especially around the early November and the firearm season. So when I'm going down there, I have a different set of expectations um, in terms of where I might need to go to get away from pressure. 
So I'll e-scout with that in mind. I'll be looking at access areas, looking for places that have roadside access where people can park on the side of the road. Um, oftentimes, if you have areas where uh, it might look like it's great and nice and secluded, you could still have people that access easily from the private land and just you know treat the public as an extension of their land. So that's something you got to always watch out for. But really, you know, it, a lot of it just comes down to experience of e-scouting stuff and hunting it and learning what you saw when you were there and then putting that in your memory bank and then the next time you go out and do a trip like that you remember what you saw the first time what was good what worked what didn't work then you're able to look at that mapping with a, a fresh set of eyes and really be able to say okay well based on my experience i think this you know peninsula or this oxbow on a river is going to have bedding because it looks the same as some place where i saw that in the past and for that time of year, I think that's going to be really hot. And then I'll, you know, mark places like that to to go and, and check out. So it, it's tough to, I, I guess part of your question is probably like, what specifically do you look for? Maybe e-scouting? No, not and, not in general e-scouting, but just uh, I was kind of getting, like alluding to, like what I would do would be the hunter visit numbers versus harvest. So you can oh. kind of get an idea and a feel of, you know, the deer density in that area, kind of like you said. And then yeah, also, you know, um, how you can also see how many hunters are there and, and hitting that property. So, yeah, I don't really, honestly, I don't really look at that too much. I just know that like some areas have higher deer densities than others. Like, uh, you know, a, a place like, like uh, anywhere along the Mississippi River corridor is going to have like good deer numbers generally. And a place like Northern Minnesota or Northern Wisconsin is not going to have as good of deer numbers. So just, I'll have that like kind of generally in my mind. But apart from that, I just know that if I'm close to a big city, there's going to be more hunters. And if I'm further away from the city, there's going to be less hunters. And some areas might have good deer densities or, or poor deer densities. But either way, I should be able to find deer. If it, regardless of if it's a low deer density area that maybe has lower hunting pressure too, or if it's a high deer density area that also has higher hunting pressure. Like, I guess I don't put as much weight into what the um, what the numbers say in terms of I guess, hunting uh, pressure, um, just those base assumptions. Whereas, like, in, in contrast, I guess, if I was looking for, like, an elk hunt, and, you know, then, like, the hunting numbers in, like, the state <laughs> Colorado, that would be something, obviously, that I would I would definitely take into consideration. Or, like, you know, proximity to, to cities like, you know, Vail or, or Boulder or whatever that have a lot of hiking pressure. Those, those things would definitely weigh in more than, than it does for me on a whitetail hunt. I'm really on a whitetail hunt. I'm looking for, is this a habitat I want to hunt? Is it a habitat I think makes sense for the season? And and, and that's really the, the, you know, the key factors I'm looking at more than anything else. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense for, for an elk hunt, for sure. Um, I kind of, I, I do apply it a little bit to my whitetail hunting, and that's only around my house, not even like for a trip, but um, I, I, I get what you're saying. But so, I got to ask you then. So, how was your elk hunting trip? What was it actually uh, successful or no? We, we've gone a couple times. Uh, the first time was a rifle hunt, five day hunt. Hunters everywhere. We all saw elk, but <laughs> didn't shoot anything. Uh, the next trip was again one where a couple of the guys in our groups got shot at elk. I was bow hunting. I, I drew back twice actually on that trip. Once on a cow, once on a bull. Um, Never felt comfortable in the shot, didn't release an arrow. And then that was, again, like the only opportunities the entire week that we were there. Third trip was, I shot a mule deer the third trip. I was like, I, I want to get a mule deer tag instead of an elk tag because I saw a lot of deer in that area. Ended up shooting one the second morning and then basically just chilled around camp and hunted with the rest of the group for the rest of the week. And fourth trip was just a couple of years ago. That was the one where really, I, I think we kind of made a leap in terms of of doing things better and, and actually doing things that would allow us to be successful more so than just being in a good spot and getting lucky uh, we were a lot more aggressive covered a lot more miles just ignored areas that that didn't have elk and didn't have elk sign and, and tried to treat it less like a whitetail hunt like we did in the first few years <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and treated it more like you know the Corey jacobson's or the born and raised outdoors where you're just covering ground and you're just trying to uh, to keep moving until you find what you're looking to find and, and we had a couple opportunities on bulls that trip and, and also cows and my buddy shot a mule deer that trip too and, and it's like okay like 
that was the first time out of all these trips where we, we kind of get a feel like, okay, this is, this is how it should go. This is what we need to do if we come out again. Um, and it just took us a while to figure that out. Yeah, no, I, uh, I got a trip planned. That's why I was kind of just asking to see, uh, eventually if you had success or w what happened, like my first trip, there was tons, I mean, tons of mule deer. Um, and of course didn't have a mule deer tag, right? That's normally how it works. And then, um, but I, I'm hoping all the things I've learned and put into practice are gonna, gonna definitely pay off this time. So this fall I'll be out there and, uh, trying to make it happen. Um, Garrett, it's been awesome talking to you. I appreciate you coming on and sharing your knowledge. Before we go, can you please um, can you share with everybody where they can find you and all your content? Yep. The place I have the most content is on YouTube, the channel DIY Sportsman. Also on Instagram and Facebook, if you type in DIY Sportsman, that should pop up. I have a podcast as well. It's under the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, but you can in addition to searching for that, searching for that, also just type in DIY sports that podcast. Just my feed will pop up, and and that's really, I guess the the main areas uh, that people can look. Um, I have a website too, but a lot of it is just kind of reposting stuff that's on other avenues already. No, it's cool. I appreciate it, and I appreciate you sharing your knowledge and and especially all those videos out there because I know they helped me, and uh, hopefully they helped a lot of other people too. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. miss thursdays with saltwater experience brought to you by golden boat lifts every thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment one of the most legendary shows in the outdoors is on waypoint tv don't miss primo's truth about hunting wednesday nights at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment